0: Good morning, if you have a Bible or or, uh, on your electronic device, navigate over to Jeremiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, it's one of those big books, you can't miss it, you can open up almost anywhere and be close to it. Jeremiah chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 31, don't be intimidated, we can get through it. The topic we'll find there, God sends Jeremiah on a run through Jerusalem, then he explains to him what he has in store for the unrepentant Jews. The title of our message, A Running Commentary. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, as we approach your word, we wanna do it with humility, realizing, Lord, that you, the maker of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, are speaking to us out of love and grace, out of concern and compassion. Lord, if... We've given our hearts to you. You're here to encourage us and to strengthen us and to fortify us for the days ahead. If we're here, Lord, and we don't know you, then your Holy Spirit is here to convict of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And we do always pray, Lord, that those that are not your children, that are not born again, that they would hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for them to forgive their sins, and that they would be saved. Use your word, Lord. You've promised that it would never return void, but that it'll accomplish its purpose. We believe that. It's accomplished its purpose in many of our hearts for many years. We wanted to go on doing that until you take us home. And so bless this text, Lord, with a sense of your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The Endangered Species Act of 1973 protects plants and animals that are listed by the federal government as endangered or threatened. One of the first tests of the Endangered Species Act was the Tellico Dam in Tennessee. The project came to a, a halt when the Secretary of the Interior declared a small fish called the snail darter to be Endangered. Its habitat was thought to be limited to the part of the Little Tennessee River that was to be inundated by the reservoir behind the dam. The case reached the Supreme Court, which concluded that the Endangered Species Act required it to stop construction of the dam, even though it had already begun before the act was enacted and $53 million had been spent. Eventually, Congress directed that the dam be completed. Meanwhile, populations of the snail darter, you'll be happy to hear, had been transplanted to other nearby rivers, and evidence of other natural populations of them had been discovered as well. Now, there's similar stories involving the northern spotted owl, the kangaroo rat, and the delta smelt. So much so that anytime people uh, buy anything now, land, they think, boy, I hope they don't find the kangaroo rat On my land. They're an endangered species whose presence halted the destruction of their habitat. Now, because of their refusal to repent of their sin, God was threatening to destroy the habitat of His presence on earth, the temple, and of His people, the city of Jerusalem. Before He sent the destroyer, He sent Jeremiah to conduct a survey to look for an endangered species. In verse 1, it says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man. If there's anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, I will pardon her. If Jeremiah could find even one righteous person, then God would pardon the entire nation and withhold his judgment. As we're going to see, Jeremiah came up empty. He could find none righteous in and around Jerusalem. Now let's step into the text ourselves. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been declared righteous by God. Wherever you are, there is at least one righteous person on the scene. In your home, at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. You may be the only one, but since you are there, God can use you to positively affect the Habitat. The message today is simply that you are the one. If one seems a lonely number to you, then it's time to remember that in Jesus Christ, you're never alone. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you can be the one the Lord is looking for, and number two, you can see the ones the Lord is looking for. Let's take a look first of all at being the one, verses one through 19. Now if you're here for the first time, we're in the middle of Jeremiah's second sermon to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed Uh, by the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Empire is on the rise. The southern kingdom is in danger because of their sin. This second sermon started in chapter three, verse six, and it runs until verse 30 of chapter six. On the surface, it's all about sin and God's judgment, but it also reveals God's will that his people would repent and therefore not perish. You see God's will right away in verse one, which we already read, but let's read it again. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there's anyone who executes judgment and seeks the truth, I will pardon her. God told Abraham he would spare Sodom and Gomorrah, those wicked cities, for the sake of 10 righteous people. He told Jeremiah he'd spared Jerusalem for the sake of one righteous person. Apparently, Jeremiah didn't count towards the one. Still, this was a generous offer. For the sake of one person who executed judgment and who sought the truth, God would have withheld the deserved destruction. Executes judgment has the idea of a practical outward obedience to the law of God. They understood the law and uh, judged accordingly. Seeking the truth might therefore refer to a more inward personal devotion to the worship of God. And so this is simply an Old Testament description of a believer. It's a person who has been declared righteous by God on the basis of their faith. They have an inward devotion to God and they're seeking to walk with the Lord according to his statutes. Now, don't overlook exactly what God asked Jeremiah to do. It's, it's pretty interesting. He first had to run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and then in her open places interviewing people. How long he did this, we're not told. But Jeremiah got up one morning, maybe several mornings in a row, maybe a week long, who knows, and his assignment was to strap on his Nikes and get his running clothes on and literally to run through Jerusalem, through the streets of the city and then out in the surrounding countryside and somehow come into contact with every individual that he saw. I don't know if he ran up behind people and tapped them out on the shoulder, if he came up to the front of them, and, and he, I don't know if he had a formula that he would ask them a particular question, but he somehow had to determine one by one by one if there was even one righteous person. And Jeremiah, as we read his book, we see he has a real heart for his people. He wants to see them repent. And so he's hopeful I'm sure that he can find a convert or or a person who believes. And so person after person. Now if you're in that crowd and you're a non-believer, remember back some of you can remember when you were non-believers and certain Christians would come around. All of a sudden you were super busy. You'd see that guy or that gal and you would just, you'd run to the restroom, you'd go anywhere you could because you didn't want to be in contact. How are you doing? And they were always, you know, looking back, they're always, they're full of joy, they care for you, they love you, but you're in the darkness of your sin, you don't want to be bothered by coming out into the light. And, And so this is Jeremiah's plight. And so day after day after day, and he's running. He's not just walking, he didn't set up a booth, he didn't make it easy, he didn't ask people to come to him. He's running from person to person, trying to find one righteous. And the symbolism of it, just so beautiful, if, if a person had a heart to understand it, he's representing God's desire to find a person, to seek a person. Is it you? Will you be saved so that I can avert the judgment that is coming upon these people, and, and, and it, it's God's heart to save. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. These Old Testament prophets were asked to do some really strange things in order to be living parables and illustrations, and it makes me think that sooner or later, if I'm a believer, God's going to ask me to do something a little unusual, certainly out of my comfort zone. It may not be as strange as some of the things Isaiah or Ezekiel or even Jeremiah had to do, Uh, but at some point, the Lord's gonna whisper to your heart and say, hey, I want you to go talk to that individual. I don't know that person, Lord. I didn't ask you if you knew them. I said to go talk to them. I'm busy. I'm in a hurry. I've gotta be here. I've gotta be there. And and, uh, it may be as simple as that. Maybe something, maybe it's somebody that you already work with. Maybe right now the Lord's telling you, yeah, I know who it is. I know what you want me to do. And I've made excuses for it. And you know, the Lord, he, he, he works with you. He loves you. He'll overcome that. Just be obedient to him. Now, the results of Jeremiah's runner in verses two through five, it says, though they say as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. And so this was kind of the answer he would get. These Jews, they would say something along the lines of, oh, well, we believe in the Lord, sure, no problem. But Jeremiah had a discernment from the Lord that they were swearing falsely. And so in verse three, oh Lord, Are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Uh, What we're being told here by Jeremiah is that he started among what we would call the common people, the average everyday citizen. When he says they're poor and foolish, it doesn't necessarily mean he's saying they're stupid, It's just that they were more of the common, less educated individuals. Maybe they didn't know the way of the Lord, the way some of the priests and prophets did. And so he's trying to make an excuse for them. He's admitting that they gave lip service to the Lord, uh, refusing to repent, even though God had been lovingly disciplining them. But he decides to adjust his strategy and go to a different clientele, as it were. And so in verse five, it says, I will go to the great men. I'll speak to them. They have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of God, but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. And so Jeremiah next went to the great men, meaning the leaders or the more educated, the spiritual leaders. He discovered them to be rebellious. He'll have more to say on this in a little while. And so there was none righteous. Judgment could therefore not be averted. Verse six, therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many, their backslidings have increased. When the national judgment came, it would be both swift and terrifying. It would be like being attacked by a wild animal out in the wilderness with no help around. Verse 7. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? The sixth century Jews worshiped God, but they did so falsely. They went through the motions while simultaneously participating in the worship of the false gods, Molech and Baal. Since the worship of those pagan deities involved perverse sexual practices, God's people were compared to harlots and lusty stallions. They were committing adultery and committing spiritual adultery. They had sunk to a pretty low level. Verse 10, Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. Now, God was instructing those whom he would call upon to destroy Jerusalem. This is like a word of instruction to them, philosophically. Notice his mercy, he told them, don't make a complete end. God loved his people, he would keep his unconditional promises to them, but he could not overlook their individual sin. He says, take away her branches, they are not the Lord's. In the book of Romans, which we're studying on Wednesday night, uh, Paul talks about the the trunk and the branches. The idea here is that God has planted Israel as his chosen people, they are his special nation. But in each generation, the branches or the individual Jews may not be saved. There's always a remnant that are saved, but many of them aren't. And he says, well, those that aren't saved, they don't get a free pass. They need to be broken off. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to preserve Israel because of my promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs, but that doesn't mean individual Jews get a pass. Uh, and, and you know, that just is a reminder There, there are no spiritual uh, grandfathers, as it were. Uh, We're all either the sons and daughters of the Lord, or or we're not. You're not born into a family that is saved. I used to think that uh, because of my heritage and my religious background, I was automatically saved. I was a pretty good deal. I could do whatever I wanted to and be automatically saved. And then I encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ where Jesus said, hey, no one's automatically saved. In fact, you're born dead in trespasses and sins. There's none righteous, not even one. Well, what am I gonna do about that, Lord? I've already taken care of it. I died on the cross, I was buried, I rose from the dead. If you believe in that, if you believe in me, I can declare you righteous and you'll be saved. And I got saved. And so there's no, these people, just because they were Jews, they weren't saved. The Lord said, I'm gonna preserve the nation of Israel, but individual Jews answer to me. And so in verse 11, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, it's not him. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine, and the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. When the Jews would ask their leaders if God was disciplining them, they would say, No, it's not him that's doing it. This is just the natural course of events. Don't worry about it. They were telling the people the words of the prophets like Jeremiah were a bunch of wind. We would say hot air today. Don't listen to Jeremiah. That guy's nuts. He runs through the city grabbing people and trying to find a, hey, we're already saved, we're Jews. These things that are happening, they're not God's judgment. God will never let the temple fail. He will never let Jerusalem fall. I know that he destroyed the northern kingdom, he allowed the Assyrian, but they deserved it. We're safe in Jerusalem. And so this is what was happening. Verse 14, therefore says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It's a mighty nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men. And they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They'll eat up your vines and your fig trees. They'll destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. In the absence of a righteous man, God would bring the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar to overrun Judah and destroy both Jerusalem and the temple. Now again, God promised he would not make a complete end of the Jews. He kept his promise then and he keeps it still. I don't have to remind you that the nation of Israel, even in their unbelief, is at the center of the world's concern and has been for many decades. Everybody wants to know what's going on over there. Uh, That tiny nation with just a few million people who stand against the rest of the world wanting their independence and their freedom. Uh, A day doesn't go by that we're not wondering and watching. It's because God has preserved those people miraculously. He told Abraham he would and he has. Now this text, it's really not about us. But as I mentioned earlier, we can step into it because the church on earth, we Christians taken as a whole, we are a restraining force against evil. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul the Apostle said that the spirit-filled church on earth restrains evil until it is taken out of the way. Now, there's plenty of evil to go around and therefore it seems like the spirit-filled church isn't doing a very good job. But when we are taken home at the resurrection and rapture of the church, evil will be unrestrained as Satan first empowers and then indwells the Antichrist to nearly destroy the planet in a mere seven years. And so yes, I look around and I think, man, the world is a terrible, fallen, evil place. And that's true. That has to do with what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. And it opened up that floodgate and we're still dealing with that today. But if you wanna see a really wicked, evil, terrible world, then read Revelation chapter six through 18. When the church is removed, when the the believers in Jesus Christ who comprise the church today are either resurrected and raptured, literally all hell breaks loose on the earth and in a few short years, Everything is almost totally destroyed as you see the unfolding of that terrible drama. And so yes, we're not perfect. The church has its many failures and failings. That's because I'm in it. That's because you're in it if you're a Christian and we are, uh, you know, being sanctified. We're not fully sanctified. We're, we're you know, day by day trying, uh, it, it, the Lord is trying to cooperate with us to make us more like Christ. We're imperfect but we are a restraining force against evil. Jesus once told us, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He didn't say we could be or that we had the potential to be those things. He said, that's what you are because you're a Christian. Now we can you know, do things to make our salt less salty and hide our light under a bushel, but that's another matter. Jesus said, listen, you guys understand you're my restrainers. You're my salt, you're my light. You're the righteous person wherever you are. And so if the Lord conducted a search in in your house or at your place of work or at school, he would find you as a Christian and say, you're the righteous person whom I want to affect the environment around you. And that's why I've put you exactly where you are. And so we need to just ask the Lord for renewed strength to be used at home and at work and at school and in our neighborhoods, everywhere we find ourselves. And then we should look for or even create opportunities to touch the lives of others with the love of God. Those others are kind of the subject of verses 20 through 31. The rest of the chapter is an indictment upon the wickedness of people. There was no doubting they deserved judgment, but remember God was seeking to avert judgment And that even in judgment, he promised to not make a complete end. The chapter closes with these words, but what will you do in the end? There's a pleading in those words for people to realize how terrible their end is going to be, and therefore repent and avoid it. We should keep the terrible end of unbelievers in mind. It motivates us to urge them to repent while they still take breath. And so verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, Who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea, by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. And so here we learn that God had abundantly blessed his people. All he asked in return was that they observe a few simple boundaries which he had set. We call it the law the law of God or the law of Moses. As a comparison, he says, listen, even the ocean obeys boundaries that I have set. It's God's way of saying, hey, I'm pretty smart. I figured out how to create the world out of nothing, and I, these oceans obey me. And now, notwithstanding you know, magnitude events like earthquakes and tsunamis that happen, on a daily basis, if I, if I were to leave here and go down to the beach, Newport Beach, and set up my umbrella and get my little hibachi going and all that, I have a pretty good idea that any second I'm not going to be inundated by a rogue wave. Because God has set boundaries for the ocean. I can see the tide comes in, the tide goes out, high tide, low tide. You know, I I have a feeling about where I can set up and be safe. I'm not thinking every second. I'm not looking at the waves and wondering what's going to happen. Because God has set boundaries for the sea. And he says, look, I've set boundaries for you but they didn't want to keep those boundaries. People always feel that God is somehow too restrictive when he sets limits. They get it into their heads that God is withholding something from them. This all started in the Garden of Eden. One simple boundary. Hey guys, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a bunch of other trees, tons of them. They're all in season. You just don't need to eat this one tree. I think it was a fig tree because God covered them with fig leaves after they did, so that wouldn't have been a temptation for me. Not a big fig eater. If I had invented fig newtons, maybe, but I don't know. You know, so, but, and, and, and what happened? The devil comes along and he tempts Eve, and he says, essentially he says, that's an unrealistic boundary. That's a boundary that's unfair. You don't need boundaries. You don't need limitation. If God loved you, he'd let you eat that tree. And ever since then, we have wanted to be boundaryless as individuals. You see it when you're raising your children. You do. You try and set realistic boundaries, and what, what do they do? They wanna know exactly where the boundary is so they can put their toe over the edge. <laughs> if their curfew is 11, they get home at 11.01. They stand outside until it's 11.01 (laughs) so that they can get home at 11.01 because what are you gonna do? And then if it's 12, it's 12.15 and then if it's one, it's 1.30 and then after that, they just don't come home anymore And, and, and there's always, you know, when you're raising your kids, it's like, this is good for you. No, it's not all of my friends. Well, then get new friends is my answer but anyway, you know, everybody and then as adults, same thing, even as Christians, We think, oh, Lord, you know, this is an unrealistic boundary. This thing that I want, this person that I want, this, whatever it is, it's good for me. And God says, no, it's not. And we go after it anyway. God sets realistic boundaries. He told his people what their boundaries were, and they said, yeah, we're not interested. We're going to continue to worship you, but we also like these pagan deities because after all, we can have all this kind of crazy stuff going on with them. And God said, that's just not going to work. Verse 26, for among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. Their houses, uh, they set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They've grown fat, they are sleek. They surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper in the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Instead of finding one righteous man, Jeremiah found these guys. I think we'd all admit that God should punish them and avenge himself on a nation like that, but then I leave you to speculate on what that means to our great nation to the extent that we mirror some of these sins and have actually gone beyond them that we have turned away from the Lord on a national basis. Verse 30, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? The last hope for Judah was the prophets and the priests, but they had turned false and were relying on their own strength rather than God's. It should encourage us as Christians to stay true to the word of God as inspired, authoritative, inerrant, and infallible. It should remind us to rely wholly on the power of the Holy Spirit, on his leading, on his enabling, rather than on anything man-centered or man-made. Again, this last phrase, but what will you do in the end? You know, both believers and non-believers have an end. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're gonna end up at what is called the judgment seat, of Christ, or the bema of Christ is the Greek word. It's a place of reward. You're already saved. It's not a judgment as to whether you're going to heaven or not. You're in. You've been resurrected. You've been raptured. You're before the Lord. It's you and him, and the Lord wants to reward you, and he's going to reward you. At least you're going to get the crown of faith for being a believer. And then after that, it has to do with what you did out of pure motives for the Lord. You you don't earn your salvation. You're not working to be saved. You're already saved, and then you continue to work for the Lord, serving him. And here's the thing. I think all of us would admit that when you finally stand before the Lord, when I finally stand before the Lord, I'm gonna wish that I had done more. Not to earn my salvation, but just because I love the Lord and he loves me and I wish that I had done more. I wish I had prayed more, I'm gonna wish I had given more, I'm gonna wish I had served more. And so while we have that feeling, when we're thinking like that, guess what? We should do those things while we have breath. We should redouble our efforts in these last days to pray and to fast and to serve and to give because the Lord is coming quickly. If you're not a believer, and for all non-believers, a very different end is described in the Bible. If you keep reading in the book of the Revelation, you'll eventually get to chapter 20. After the great tribulation, after the second coming of Jesus Christ, after the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, there appears a great white throne. All the dead of all time who are unsaved will appear before the Lord at that throne. And they will be found uh, short of the righteousness that's required to enter heaven, having rejected Jesus Christ and his forgiveness of sins. The Bible says they will be cast alive into the lake burning with fire. This is the second death. It's a death that goes on for eternity. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that is your end. And and this word is saying to you, this this is the question God is asking you, what will you do in the end? You know, as a pastor, as a chaplain, some of you have done this as well. When you visit certain people who are towards the end of their life, some people have the luxury of being, you know, knowing that they're going to die. And you say, hey, you're going to die. What are you going to do now at the end when you're about ready to set foot into eternity? You know, sadly, some people still will not receive Christ as their savior. They trust in themselves, their own good works, in their religion, whatever it is. When Jesus said, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so this morning, for all of us, for all of us, be sure that you've trusted Christ as your savior, that you've asked him to forgive you your sins, that you've been born again by God the Holy Spirit, because the end is something that all of us face, amen? All right, let's pray together.